It is me, Allison Rosen. Welcome to another episode of Allison Rosen is Your New Best Friend. I am sitting here with Sarah Papalardo and Beth Newell of the website Reductress and also the new book, How to Win at Feminism, The Definitive Guide to Having It All and Then Some. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So how's it going? You guys are in, you, you're freshly in LA. Yes. You live in New York. You're here doing some book readings and book signings. Yes. And uh, just to orient ourselves. The election just happened. It's all very fresh. Yeah, we literally flew here like the morning after getting the news. <laughs> so it's very, very fresh. Yes. Yeah, I was, uh, while you were in the restroom, I was talking to Sarah. And by the way, I keep wanting to reverse your names. So if I do that, I'm sorry. It's okay. We're kind of the same, but also yeah. different. <laughs> we'll respond to anything. <laughs> okay. Um, I was talking to Sarah about like what that felt like to be getting on a plane the next morning because I just wanted to stay in bed. Even though actually... Actually, I had that like, oh, gnawing, I don't know what to do with this feeling. So I actually ran errands and went out and tried to see people. Mm-hmm. So I mm-hmm. guess I'm lying when I say I just wanted to stay in bed. It was just a weird day. I'll yeah. say that. Yeah. I mean, like the closest thing that I could think of was waking up after like a breakup that just happened mm-hmm. or somebody died that that's, you really love. Yes. That's yeah. how it felt to me. It felt like that feeling of grief and then waking up and like, oh, this is still true. Right. This is the reality still. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I must ask as someone who is, uh, super pregnant, I found out Beth that you had your baby in a car Yes, and you tweeted about it. And I think people took you, you tweeted that you had your baby in the Honda, in a Honda fit, right? Honda fit, yeah. And you made a mess and can you get a new car? And people took you seriously, but yeah. the true part was that you actually had your baby in the Honda. Yeah. So I did have my baby in the backseat of a Honda fit and uh, it was my sister's car, which we were driving because our car was like deemed undrivable b- by its inspection that week. Mm. And we were like, fuck, we need a new car. We don't have the money for this. A baby's <laughs> coming. So we're driving around my sister's car. And um, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, underestimated the strength of contractions and got in the car and the baby came out five minutes down the road. So yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Me, like, trying to have a sense of humor about the whole thing, which we were just sort of still in a state of shock. I, like, tweeted from the hospital room just like, hey, Honda, I made a mess in the backseat of this car. Can I get a new one? Uh, yeah. So. And the rest is history. So yeah. are you thinking of having a car baby as well? <laughs> I recommend I, Do you it. recommend yeah. it? I highly recommend it. Yeah. What position were you in? So I was in the backseat, um, like, facing out the towards the trunk. Um, like with my hands on the headrest on my knees mm-hmm. and uh, my doula was with us. So it wasn't really as scary as you might think. Cause I had someone there to like sort of be the expert. Um, and it was your second kid. Yeah. It was my second kid. And she was just sort of like, okay, get in this position. It'll be more comfortable to ride to the hospital this way. Did you just pull over? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, what happened was my doula showed up, we were going to go to the hospital and like literally as she was walking in the door and we we knew we were going to like leave for the hospital that second anyway, but like as she was walking in the door, my water broke and we were like, oh fuck, this might be like 
further along than we thought. Or, mm-hmm. I don't know. We didn't really think about it because we were like, well, we're already going to the hospital. Let's just get, get going. Right. So I'm like walking out. Apparently, like the water breaking was like maybe one of the last things that was like holding the baby. <laughs> and then uh, I like walking to the car and I think that really like shimmied her down through my body. <laughs> So, so anyway, uh, I had like a very like severe contraction and I was like, I want to push. And my doula, who is her name, Sylvie, she's, um, Austrian. She was like, do not push. <laughs> and, uh, I was like, I'm not saying this as like me wanting to push. It's like my body wants to push and is going to push mm-hmm. and there's nothing that's going to be done about it. And then I had another contraction and it literally just popped her head out of me. <laughs> like I was like, her head's out her head's out <laughs> I was like, and how, could you feel it or you saw it or how did you know i could feel it i mean i i think i would have known anyway but like having had a baby before i was like yep the head is out uh <laughs> no turning back yeah uh so from there it's just kind of like we have to like deliver this baby and it was very fast jeff i hope you can appreciate how much this is scaring the shit out of me <laughs> yeah i assume so <laughs> i have a friend that the same thing happened to she just was on the way to the hospital. I was like, oh, it's starting on the way to the hospital. Five minutes out of her driveway, bloop, baby just fell Because I just took a class at the hospital, like a birthing class. And I feel like the main point of the class, and it was it was given by labor and delivery nurses, and I'm sure they have a vested interest in, in conveying this message, but it was don't come to the hospital too soon. Don't yeah. come, to, like stay home as long as possible because there's early labor and then there's active labor and they're like, here's how you know the difference and whatever yeah. you do, don't come in and during early labor because there's such a huge, like there's so many people coming in, they will intervene if you come in in early labor and then you will end up being in do- with Pitocin and like they'll do yeah. all these things. I but- think that's very true for the first kid for most people. And then for like the second kid, my midwives were like, don't wait too long. Don't wait too long. The second kid, people always wait too long. But the the guidelines they had given me about like like measuring the length of contractions and the distance between contractions, uh, just did the math didn't seem to be adding up. I also was like laboring through the night, kind of like alone, just in in this weird state of like a you know it's like sort of an indescribable state where you're kind of like out of your body and like I wasn't you know it was kind of like my husband's job to monitor the contractions and he was sleeping (laughs) you know Mm. (laughs) so yeah okay so I have to say so I knew once I read that you'd given birth in a car I was like oh my god I want to ask her about that but there is part of me that was like I'm sitting down with the women behind Reductress and to start out by talking about child into like bonding over childbirth and talking about childbirth. Is that anti-feminist? No, I don't think so. I think it's like not talked about enough. And like when I was pregnant, I was like, please, someone tell me what's happening. Like what's going to happen? You know, (laughs) I've learned so much just from Beth having children that like I never knew because nobody talked about it. I think like my my mom, like for the first 10 years of my life, my mother wouldn't stop talking about my birth and I'm an only child. So I think it was just like that one big thing that happened. Mm-hmm. But like people would always be like, oh, shut up, Arlene. Like, oh, get over it. It was 10 years ago. Um, but now I kind of get it. Like, Yeah, I think it's like, be, I don't know, because women are shamed for so many things and being a mom is seen as uncool and whatever. We're like, oh, no one wants to hear about that. It's gross. And you're like, but it's all of you were made this way. Like Mm -hmm. literally all of you came into this world this way. Like, aren't you curious? (laughs) 
Right. So I was reading an interview with you guys. I can't remember now if it was LA Times or New York Magazine, where you were saying that you don't feel like satire really changes anyone's... Well, actually, let's just back up. For listeners who aren't familiar with Reductress, can you explain what Reductress is? So Reductress is a satirical women's magazine, kind of like The Onion meets Cosmo. But um, obviously, we've branched out into a lot of other parroting a lot of other content like uh, oh yeah you guys have a podcast as well that i should have mentioned yeah we have a podcast called mouth time um which is kind of a parody of like women's like certain magazines podcasts Mm -hmm. um if you've heard some of the certain women's magazines podcasts that are quite ridiculous everyone should listen to it just to hear the vocal affectation of the host (laughs) because it's amazing yes i mean yeah we we had uh nicole silverberg and anna dresden as co-hosts for a while as quinn and div and we just brought on uh, rachel winitsky as dakota with a d and um like the vocal fry and nasal qualities kind of rub off on everyone in the office for a while <laughs> so i think we all end up like <laughs> oh my god <laughs> um yeah it's fun um okay so you were oh. saying it's a satirical women's yes. website um sort of like the onion like a, a spoof of women's magazines yes exactly but that you're 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 spreading out into more areas yeah i mean we we do a lot of stuff with the first person confessional stuff like the it happened to me style of of writing and um uh, what else am I thinking of? You know, yeah. Oh. I mean, it's like broadened from satirizing women's media to sort of just like satirizing women's lives altogether. <laughs> so there's <laughs> yeah. a lot of like daily minutia stuff. Yeah. To- <laughs> Do you feel like people get it for the most part? Um, I think that uh, our generation gets it. I think that it's hard, like unless you are steeped in this kind of not just women's media, but also this kind of like millennial internet culture. Um, you might not be able to grasp like everything, but I think there's something that everyone can latch on to, whether it's just relatable in their own lives or just like what they see online. And um, yeah, there's something for everyone, mm-hmm. even guys. Um, okay. I have my question. I have another question and I'm, but I'm at that point of pregnancy where I'm so forgetful that I'm like, I got to, there's no way I'm going to remember both of them. So I'll just go with the one that I was asking before, mm. which was, <clears throat> excuse me, in this interview, you guys were saying that you don't think that satire can change people's minds. It's more just to sort of reaffirm our perceptions of the world. I wouldn't say that it's necessarily to reaffirm our perceptions, but make us more aware of the things that we take for granted in our own lives. And I think, especially in the media, the certain messages that we are getting, it's and in the volume that we're getting them in, it's easy to take stuff for granted. It's easy to take for granted the way that empowerment marketing like points out your flaws in order to show how you overcome them, in order to sell lotion and things like that. Are you talking about like the Dove Real Women campaign? Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, I think like we can highlight sexist issues in a way that people might not have thought about, but they have to be open to receiving that message mm-hmm. yeah. in order to appreciate the joke, I guess. Yeah. Let's can we talk about the Dove Real Women campaign for a second? Because sometimes I look at that and I'm like, oh, but it is good that they are showing all these images of women who don't fit the norm or Mm -hmm. or, i mean i guess they actually do fit the norm of america but that you don't normally see but then also yes but at but it is to sell products Mm -hmm. yeah that's the thing like i'm not like against it i think that the the thought is genuine and and good um but 
here's an here's a thought why don't we just do that without make building a campaign around it right why don't like we just pointing do it, it out like just yeah. put a heavier model in your ad without being like she's fat yeah, yeah. without patting ourselves on the, or patting yeah. themselves on the back or right. like look at us being so yeah on the cutting edge right i do think it's a step in the right direction but it's kind of like you know like token casting on a tv show it's like it's more making themselves feel better than it is actually helping anyone or affecting change, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I mean, like on the upside, I feel like it's becoming such a thing in marketing now that it's like everyone's doing it to some extent that it's going to get so watered down that it won't matter anymore. And it'll just be kind of like part of part of our culture is just to see different bodies. Hopefully, so. Yeah. Well, that's a positive way of looking yeah, at it, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think so. I think like once, once like, empowerment marketing becomes a little passe in advertising Mm -hmm. it's probably just going to become normal to see other women's bodies i guess that's what i'm wondering ultimately like empower it's it's so interesting to think of empowerment marketing and how that message is completely commodified and and kind of two-faced at times really ultimately is that helping empowerment or hindering it it's so hard because we're at such a crossroads right now of like with every step that's made for that's that we take forward it's just another step back in that like whatever progress we make is immediately commodified now because of the how fast mm-hmm. social media works and everything it's like any original thing you have to say even aside from empowerment marketing it's like any kind of like cultural capital that comes from like african-american culture is immediately co-opted immediately you know sold to some extent so uh, yeah i mean it's good that the idea of empowerment has gotten to the place that it is it sucks that it's already been like gobbled up by by marketers but um yeah i mean it would just be cool if we could like celebrate our skin folds without being sold like a skin firming lotion at the same time because it's (laughs) just like how i don't know how women are metabolizing that like walking contradiction uh it i try not to let it drive me crazy but who knows yeah yeah i think it speaks to like how little there is out there for women that's actually authentic that it does appeal to a lot of women like i think uh so women are so like starved for like anything empowering at all that they're like the first thing they see they're like okay thank you (laughs) it's gonna be be really hard to point out how like problematic this is and articulate it exactly until we do see something better and i Mm -hmm. think that's like the case with all tv shows and stuff like we just don't know what we're missing until it's right in front of us and we're like oh shit like like broad city or something like that like we never knew like how what we were missing and why people on tv weren't talking like us until yeah you, know, you see a good show or something like yeah that. you're like oh that's what female friendship looks yeah, like yeah yeah <laughs> what so. do you guys think of girls so I, m- I missed the last two seasons and i heard it got really good but um you know i was like metsa metsa on the first couple seasons like it was good it just wasn't i don't know we're in such a golden age of television that I like other stuff better. <laughs> but yeah, I guess like our my issue with the show uh, was more with like the media discussion around it than it was the show itself. Like it, if it had just been able to like exist in its own I don't know. It there's just like so much expectation heaped on it and so much misinterpretation of like what I think what the show is trying to be and Unfortunately, it's one of those shows where it's like a bunch of white women who don't have really any like don't have real economic problems. You know what I mean? And it's like 
is that the responsibility of Lena Dunham alone to give <laughs> us that content when all she knows is a privileged white existence? No, but is it a problem that this is all we're getting in terms of media? Yes. You know, mm, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's complicated. I like, I, I have had some issues with the show, but I also hate to just like lump all of society's problems onto like one woman and her show. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it seems like it's going to be, like, society's last gasp when it comes to, like, making a show about four white women who are rich in New York. Like, I don't know. I'm I'm ready for something new, but mm-hmm. it's over now. Um, you guys both come from comedy world. You're still in co- the comedy world, obviously. And did you – were you both at UCB, and is that how you met? We met at the Magnet. Oh, right. I had just moved from Chicago, so I was kind of, like, new to the scene. But Beth was involved at UCB. Mm-hmm. And then how did the idea for the site come about? Well, we were doing an election show. So this was like 2012. And I don't know, we were just like, had like gone through a lot of sketch stuff at the Magnet. And um, Beth emailed me one night and she's like, oh, I got this dumb idea. I'm going to make a fake women's magazine. And we're like, oh, someone must have done it. So we like Googled everything. And it turns out nobody had really done it in any meaningful way. So we... Uh, got to it and um, built like a site and got some friends together to write like 50 or 60 articles and hit the ground running by April of 2013 and the rest is gravy. (laughs) Was um, feminism something important to you growing up? Mm. I don't think I would have used the word feminism, but I do think I always had a streak of like, not like to wear dresses and like wanting to like run around in the woods in my cutoff jeans, (laughs) you know, like I just like had... I hated like any form of oppression on me. Like what if, if, for instance, my dad like wanted my brother to mow the lawn and I was like, how come I never got taught how to mow the lawn? You know, like just all these little things that build up over time. But I would, I never knew that as feminism until much later. And what about you, Sarah? Yeah, I think I kind of just like took it for granted. Not in a bad way. I just kind of wasn't, I didn't feel like it was something that I needed to like be an activist about until, I don't know till after we launched Reductress, I think. Like, I mean, I don't know. I had plenty of other stuff to worry about, just, like, being gay and, like, all that crap when I was young that, like, feminism was kind of just, like, the the after effect or, like, the afterthought of it all. Um, but, yeah, I mean, like, we didn't really, like, launch Reductress being, like, this is going to be a feminist website. Like, maybe the, the aim was, like, implicitly feminist, but mm-hmm. we were, like, we want to make satire and we want to make comedy and, you know... Uh, I, I, we are feminists and like we clearly like see the world in a certain way and that informs what we write but yeah it's weird like we never really just were like we, we never were like feminists first before comedy right now. yeah right I feel like I've had this conversation a few times lately with with men discussing what happened to the word feminist and why where did it come from that some people like I, I, there's, I don't run into women all the time who say things like this, but there are a fair amount of women who will be like, I mean, I'm not a feminist, but mm-hmm. yeah, they'll be like, just, I believe in equality, but I'm feminism. not a feminist and I don't yeah. hate men. And it's like, yeah. what? To me, it never meant that. To me, it right. only means you believe in equal rights. Right. So where, where did this distortion of the word come from? 
And is that something that bothers you guys? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, like, we've got, like, a big PR problem as feminists and we have since, like, the 60s because, like, that was the first wave of people disavowing feminism because it was, like, the bra-burning brand. And now it just seems that people feel uncomfortable with, like, women existing, like, and being honest about their experience. And then also they feel uncomfortable about the intersectional aspects of it and actually, like, incorporating, uh, like... Uh, social justice and, and, and people of color and economic disadvantage into the conversation mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Intersectional means where it intersects with other yeah, social like issues. Class and gender. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think men have had, a, have had an issue with feminism from the very beginning. I mean, not all men, but <laughs> anyway, um, not all men, not all men. Um, but they've like, it's been mischaracterized in every single wave of feminism to be something it isn't, you know? And it's like, uh, you know, we're still there, unfortunately. And I, I think also <laughs> pop culture helps a lot. You know what I mean? Like growing up, I just feel like I saw so many cartoon caricatures of feminist women on TV where it was always like the cranky aunt or something. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like it always was depicted to me as being a woman who's just like very angry or annoyed or like right. an idiot. You know, it never was... There was not a lot of like strong women depictions where it was just like, she's a hardworking, positive woman, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that idea that if you refer to yourself that way, that will repel men. And like, who wants yeah. that? Which yeah. I think you guys, you guys get at that a lot in the book in a really clever way. Uh, yeah. I mean, as a feminist, obviously being unfuckable is like a huge priority and you need to do what you can to make yourself be feminist and fuckable at the same time. So we devote a lot of the book to that. Um, yeah. I mean, like, obviously you probably read, read a bit of the book. The book is a bad manual on how to be a feminist from the point of view of a women's magazine. So there's a lot of really terrible <laughs> advice that, um, uh, with, you know, yeah, that is just, and what? just, I love the uh, the absurdist element, like the chart of what's feminist and not feminist. Yeah. And it starts out, like you think, oh, this is, I kind of know where this is going to go. And then it's like, dark chocolate is feminist. Milk chocolate is not feminist. Yeah. <laughs> Yogurt is not feminist, if you were wondering. Yeah. I mean, and that's that speaks to just a lot of like the contradictions that we get, like, because we're at this weird tipping point where like there's still men being like fuck feminism and women too but also like feminists have gotten enough of a stronghold that we're also like calling out people within our own culture that there's this hard like middle ground where you're kind of getting it from both ends and it it amounts to like a lot of mixed messages about one what one ought to do or not to do as someone who thinks they're a feminist and we just fucked a lot fucked around a lot with the like mixed messages Mm -hmm. we get from all sides as someone who really thought, oh, we're about to have our first female president, how mm-hmm. amazing, Ugh. and then to discover that's not at all what happened, and instead w- the person who was chosen as someone who to me is such a humongous step backwards, it's made me think maybe we're not as – we haven't made nearly as much progress as I thought we had. Yeah. What I do think, you guys think? I think that's what we're all feeling after this election. I mean, it was like – we knew there was sexism, obviously, but like the beating she took was so brutal and the lack of scrutiny on Donald Trump for mm-hmm. all the horrible racist and sexist things he said and was saying and has done just was like mind boggling. Like, I guess we just like, again, we knew it was there, but we we're like, 
even this you, you you people don't have an issue with like i don't it was, yeah no i mean it's just like eight years of like somewhat liberal policy has just awakened this beast that we now have to contend with and i mean i guess like the first step is admitting that it's there and like here it is like they they found a noose in fort right, park in brooklyn and like we're hearing ugh. stories about this stuff everywhere now and in, for, in fort green in, yeah wow like around the corner yeah. from my house and See, it's, it's just like, like i want to believe it's just in super rural areas right i know i think it's a real wake-up call to like the liberal uh like blue staters among us of like just what lives amongst us yeah, yeah. and so much of it is just like anonymous too like it's just i mean like at least two people we know have gotten like bizarre anti-semitic messages on twitter and facebook and like it's these people who are relatively anonymous like they're not held accountable to anything so it's just this like army of anonymous trolls that are like mm -hmm. wreaking havoc on everything and they're not being held accountable for it which is the, the craziest part and they're emboldened yeah, yeah of think, course which is really scary um okay so you guys both live in new york now i know uh sarah you're in brooklyn and beth you're in westchester mm -hmm. um where did you guys grow up uh well i grew up in massachusetts just north of boston the yeah. suburbs and i grew up in southern new hampshire so not too far away mm -hmm. and what were your childhoods like um you know like suburban like reg <laughs> i i want to <laughs> say know, average but i guess that's what everyone thinks uh uh you know like it was like a fairly well-to-do town and i was on like the low i guess maybe the lower end of that spectrum of wealth but like obviously not poor by any means mm. And you have a brother who was asked to mow the lawn when you weren't? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had an older brother. Yeah. Mm. Were you a happy kid? Um, it depends on the year. Like, I, <laughs> I think I was very happy when I was young. I do think that, like, as I entered my teen years, like, a lot of this, like, being a woman stuff started to like weigh down on me <laughs> like just I don't know there's a, it's hard to like articulate or pinpoint but I just think uh as I went into high school I just had a lot of that like self-hate that girls have mm -hmm. um body image stuff yeah like body image just like I don't know everything like uh, the, the difficulty with like female friendships as you get older and like mm -hmm. this like feeling of the need for like competition like I just think this like this I, all these ideas are instilled in us at that age that like we need to be better. Mm -hmm. What um what'd your parents do? My mom is a nurse. My dad uh used to work in radio like doing um like college basketball games and stuff like that and then he became a teacher and then an administrator at a school. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um okay, so you grew up uh in north of Boston and then where'd you go to college? I went to Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, which is like an art school. Mm -hmm. And then did you, was comedy always the goal? No, I, um, I always like loved comedy, like with a fierceness, but I didn't, I just always assumed everyone did. Cause it's like, you know, everyone likes comedy, I guess, or at least I thought so. Uh, so it wasn't until I got to college and started taking improv classes and, uh, getting into that scene that I realized how much I loved it. Mm-hmm. And sketch or doing long form improv, like which what aspect of it? I writing got really, really into long form improv for like th the three years of college, and then uh, I guess a couple years after college, I started getting really into sketch comedy and writing. Mm -hmm. so. And 
All those same questions, Sarah. (laughs) Quick. I'll do the short version. Um, No, I, uh, so I grew up in New Hampshire. It was, I was an only child. So it was like, I guess like it wasn't unhappy, but it was extremely lonely in the way that I had to make my own fun. So I kind of discovered comedy as a thing around like 14 or 15. Was Arlene supportive? Arlene did not understand it. And I think it was like, I kept it to myself too. Like I just watched a lot of TV and then like wrote on my own time. And Mm -hmm. I remember being like embarrassed to say that that's what I wanted to do because I think at that point I just didn't want to like show interest in anything that was kind of my jam show interest exactly so and right around age 15 i was like "Mm -mm, nobody's gonna know this Mm -hmm. nobody's gonna know my dreams so i (laughs) yeah i mean i started as soon as i got my license i started taking improv classes down in boston and um just i was just like such a like a i couldn't stop consuming it and i comedy i mean like just performing and watching it uh but like nobody in my town kind of I had no like kindred spirits in that way where I'd be like, like, I think I taught one of my friend's moms would like watch strangers with candy or like upper citizens brigade. (laughs) And like, we would commiserate over that, but it was just somebody's mom that was into it. Like (laughs) nobody at my school, like we just had like nothing in common for some bizarre reason. What what would you say the people at your school were like? I mean, I've been to New Hampshire a few times, so I have this sort of idea of like what it's like, but Southern New Hampshire feels like not very different from anywhere outside of boston like it's just such a suburb it was like you know like a well-to-do suburb so a lot of like children of professionals and Mm -hmm. stuff like that so they like they liked sports they liked art and stuff but for some reason i don't know i just don't think that like comedy nerd was a thing then the way that it is now so like they were interesting people but they just weren't necessarily interested in the same things that i was so i just like played played sports and like did all that stuff and found theater a lot later and so then i went off to chicago for school where did you go i went to depaul um uh because i think i like heard like tina fey almost went there once i think that's the (laughs) only reason that i knew about it and then i was like oh well i'm gonna end up here and it was great and that's when i kind of just like dived into the whole i dove into the whole thing and Mm -hmm. and performed and wrote and then up in new york and did you go to new york for what were you pursuing at that point at that point, I was, I had actually like taken a break from performing. I think I was kind of burned out from improv and all that stuff. So I was writing plays mostly. And I knew I was just ready for a change. Like a lot of people in Chicago had picked a coast uh, to go to. So I felt like it was time to move to New York. And I was mostly just, at that point, I was just like quietly writing. And I was like, this is the time in my life that I sit back and, and like think about things and write um but i was just doing stuff at the magnet for fun and kind of just as like an outlet uh, that's where i met beth mm-hmm. so um super personal question yeah but what was your experience coming out like um it was like long it was one of those things where there was like no one moment it was like this process from like the age 16 to 20 did like, you always know i didn't really figure it out until i was a about 16 like it was this weird like summer that i just kind of was like oh like this is a thing and this completely represents how i feel and this totally answers a lot of questions about like my relationships with boys in the past and things like that what did you encounter that it sort of made you realize like oh maybe (laughs) like what's the this that you're talking about Uh, so i think i was spending the summer uh like away from home i was like 
um spending some on the cape which is like what people freaking do and then i i think i i heard like some rumor that like two of my friends were just like doing it like two of my girlfriends were back home just like doing it and i was like where did this come from you guys were like like they were like <laughs> one of them was like making fun of the other because like i heard she's bi and like all this stuff and then all of a sudden it, they were clearly just like have they were dating they mm. were basically dating and i was like wait a minute what you can do that like that's crazy <laughs> um and then i just like the gears started turning and i was like oh this kind of explains everything <laughs> so um yeah in like the perfectly cliche way i had like started ditching field hockey practice to go to do this like intercity like theater group mm -hmm. and we like went on a retreat <laughs> and it was just like uh and then of course um i like kissed a girl on the retreat and it was a thing and uh so i i kind of registered that and then i was like okay uh so i'm not gonna feel any of these feelings for a little while and i like uh and did you think it was wrong or were you just like this is freaking me out i was just like mortified i mean it was just that high school thing where i i was like oh i have to like live around these people who are judging me mm -hmm. and i couldn't it just was not worth it for me to come out at that age like it just was so in the same way that like nobody liked anything weird in my social <laughs> circle like that just would not have flown at that age so um with the exception of those two girls <laughs> for some reason but uh yeah, I mean that that all had a dark ending anyway. Yeah. But um one of them shot themselves oh when my they were twenty five. I mean, yeah, but that's like total non sequitur. Um but yeah, were, I mean it was oh. were they together at that point? No. No, they were just like screwing around. Like it was wasn't a big deal. But um yeah, one was just kinda nuts. Mm. But um no, it was yeah, so like it was just far easier to hide that stuff, just like it was like I'm like, oh, I'm going to like hide what I want to do when I grow up and also who I want to be with until mm -hmm. like I work this stuff out. And like, so the basically the minute I got to college and like was like a thousand miles away from home, uh, that slowly started to work itself out because um, it turns out that all you have to do is exist in college to get a girl to kiss you. So um, <laughs> it's true. I think I, I think I like 30 days or less. I was like on it. Um, and then it was just like this two years of like slowly becoming comfortable with showing people in my life that like oh like this is a girl i'm dating um mm. which was a long slow process yeah how was your family uh my mom wasn't like super cool about it and she was very baffled because i'd had a boyfriend in high school and like it just didn't make sense to her um like i came out when i was 20 to her she was kind of like the last <laughs> the last thing on my to-do list as far <laughs> as coming out went um but i think you know she like within the same day of me telling her, she was like, you know, no matter what, I love you no matter what. And then that just like followed with like four years of her actually getting used to the actual idea of me being with women. Um, so we like didn't talk about it a lot for a while. And then, um, yeah, I think she just like, she got used to it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Good. Um, what role i'm wondering like what role did women's magazines and women's media play as you were growing up if it did play a role like for me i had subscriptions to ym and teen magazine and 17 and then sassy and jane and all that um but from a very 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 young age i, I don't even know like where i end and ym begins <laughs> <laughs> it's so true it was like i was like eight and i got all yeah. those things <laughs> i yeah i was i had all of them and all of my friends were obsessed with them too and we just like took it as gospel really because 
we uh, everybody just wanted like boys and makeup so mm-hmm. right i yeah. had this fantasy of when i'm older this is what getting ready for a school dance will look like yeah. or this is what like i'll drive around in a white cabriolet with a surfboard in the back which right. is, <laughs> could not be less anything i'm truly into but you know and i'll wear this cologne or this perf- perfume mm-hmm. eau de parfum right. eau de cologne any of those really and like i don't know i just had this idea of like i will be a cool older teenager yeah and i really never was no oh god <laughs> i was so uncool but i just remember having a boyfriend was like the holy grail yes. and that was what that instilled in me more than anything yes i remember saying to my mom i, I like wishing that i was dating wishing that i had a boyfriend my mom said something like you don't know what the the pain of having someone break up with you is like, though. Super helpful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, but it, it, and in my young mind, I said, but at least if someone like to me, there was something glamorous about walking around having broken up with someone because like at least you're in the game. Yeah, that's yeah, how right? much I was like, exactly. but I'm just a kid, you yeah. know. It all seems so like melodramatic yes. and cool. Like you just look look out a window on a rainy day. <laughs> totally sit you sit in your little window yeah. seat, which I never Ethan. had. <laughs> Call me. Um, what about you, Beth? Women's media magazines. Yeah, we had YM and Seventeen around, and I, I mean, I definitely had that desire to like be cool and pretty and stuff, but I also always had some distance from it of like being like these ads are ridiculous this is ridiculous <laughs> i think also like a lot of that like sort of resentment built up of like me wanting to be those things but not like not actually having the money to like buy those magazines all the time or like buy the things in those magazines or like i don't know like my parents i'm again i was not poor but i like they just didn't give us like spending money mm-hmm. and like i just didn't have like all the things that my friends had so i think it was almost more just like a defense mechanism that I was like, this stuff's stupid, <laughs> you know? Uh, so I was always like sort of into it, but a little resistant at the same time. Maybe that's good though. Cause I had no distance. I had no ability to think there was anything off yeah. or wrong or distorted or inaccurate about yeah. that, that um, presentation of, being a young woman also like my mom is like very feminine like in her like beauty standards but she doesn't like to shop and she like put you know puts on makeup but it's very like okay here's my lipstick and mascara it's not like she's not like ooh, i love that color you know what i mean like she's just never i think it also that comes from like more like insecurity on her end that she didn't like like ever feel like she had a full grasp on it Mm -hmm. but uh yeah i don't know like it was like the marshals in the drugstore like yeah (laughs) feminine aesthetic of new england yeah uh, (laughs) yeah it's sort of low-key yeah yeah depending on the the person i guess yeah (laughs) um so let's talk about the book which listeners you guys should get this would make a great gift um, not only is it super funny, but it's like excellent cardstock. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you can't see it, but it looks great. It's very, yeah, it's very bright and colorful and there's lots of pictures and it's super fun. It's so um, beautiful. Yeah. Mm. It really turned, it, are you, you must be really happy with how it turned out, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we were nuts over the design. Like we really put more time into it than I ever thought possible. So <laughs> we were like the pickiest like authors, I yeah. think, for our publisher. We were like, we were like, no. a, we were like Adele's last album, but for this book, <laughs> we were like firing people left and right. No, <laughs> not really. But 
Um, yeah, there's some fun stuff in there. And it was definitely designed to be on a coffee table or by a toilet to kind of like take in small bites for sure. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, I have a question about being very picky mm-hmm. with what you wanted for the book. Um, a thing I struggle with in my own life is if I'm not in love with something that's put in front of me, but I don't know exactly, like I'm a person that I don't know what I want till I see it. I just know that I'm unhappy with that, but Mm -hmm. I feel like that's super irritating and annoying. I'm not saying that's what it is for you guys. I'm just saying Mm -hmm. for me, like I have a hang up about that. Like I feel like I'm, I just, I'm coming across as someone who is indecisive. Well, I am indecisive, but I'm coming across as like a nightmare to work with. So I will often just be like, yeah, that's okay. And then inside I'm like, Ugh, I don't like it. And then when I get finally get to the thing that I really like, I'm in love with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But how are you confident just saying no, 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 no? I think we've gotten more there. I think that's a very like woman thing to like totally feel like you can't ask for what you want or that you have to apologize for like yes. having thoughts and feelings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think we've like, we definitely got there. There's definitely some with like the cover design in particular, for some reason, it just went through a lot of stages where we just like weren't feeling it. And it was like, we kept asking ourselves, like, are Is we it being bad? Yeah. Like, are we being too difficult? And then, I mean, like we finally settled on this and loved it. But uh, yeah, it was like a lot of like, what's going on? And again, too, like we had a really hard time articulating what we wanted. Um, yeah, it was hard to, it was hard to find one image that would kind of distill everything in the book, uh, you know, down to just like a fist breaking through glass, which seems obvious in hindsight, but like (laughs) it took a lot of ideas to get down to that. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's like, it's so hard with like sharing your and like finding your opinion and then sharing it with someone because like i used to work in an agency and like client stuff was a nightmare because clients never know what they want but they're always just going to tell you no until (laughs) so like having had that experience i'm like i never want to be the person that just says no without constructive feedback so like the only thing i try to do is like if i'm gonna say it's wrong like i'm gonna give some kind of meaningful direction yeah uh, and not just like tell them to fuck off that was the other like ethical quandary i was having because i went to school for illustration so i've also been that person where people are just like no i don't like it or like do like five revisions on this even though i paid you 50 bucks for you know like (laughs) uh so i was like i think we're being too difficult you know there's like moments where i was like oh my god are we being horrible to these people but we got there. Yeah, we got there. We made it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always get to a, a a point where I worry that I am coming across like someone who will never be pleased. But that's really not what it is because then there's always that point where mm-hmm. I fall in love with the whatever it is unless yeah. I don't push to that point. Yeah. But I don't know. That's hard. It is like a matter, I think, of articulating what you don't like about the image that's not just like – I don't like you know that's what can be hard though yeah sometimes if if you don't know if you're like it just doesn't yeah it just doesn't feel right I'm sorry I'm an asshole yeah I mean I think there's like a path to finding that thing and and usually it's just like through some kind of discussion like what kind of ideas what kind of alternatives there are but you know I I would definitely reframe that idea and like don't think of yourself as hard to please but you're just more of you have a relentless vision Oh, I like yeah. that. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it's very empowering. And, yeah. you know, take no prisoners. That's all. You're just yeah. a born leader and a visionary. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. I'm like Elon Musk, but exactly. regarding like my website design. Let's exactly. Say. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I think what was hard for me with this is like we, ha- we, we kept having these moments where we had to like go back to the drawing board completely and like 
I'm kind of a perfectionist, so it just felt like so out of control. Like, okay, we're just scrapping everything again. <laughs> you know, like it was just like, what is happening? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's like once you like work with enough different groups of people, you kind of realize like when ego is at play and when like eh, if you're just trying to figure out everyone's deals and their own vulnerabilities, you can kind of like use it to your advantage and by like kind of honoring what those insecurities are and make sure everybody feels like empowered to do their best work Mm -hmm. it's like Mm -hmm. i mean it's hard even like leading a team of like comedy writers too because like all you want out of them is their best work and you don't want anybody's ego getting in the way of of anything so like it's just like how can i create a space that's like the most conducive to making good work and making people feel good about themselves and how do you do that and how many people are involved um, so we have uh, an associate editor and two in-house contributors and then two interns. So the rest are outside contributors, but those are our those are our in-house babies that we work with. And um, yeah, I mean, I think um, giving everyone kind of an, a degree of agency over what they're writing um, while also leading them in the right direction. And, you know, especially like after all this Trump craziness, it's like everybody kind of just has ideas mostly revolving around like screaming to the void and yelling and being sad and like just finding a way to like guide people in the right direction, but also like saying what they want to say and like providing cake when necessary (laughs) or other baked goods. Yeah. I think like obviously our site kind of is what it is. So we do need to have a certain type of content, but within that there are like various topics and styles of articles. And so it's like, when we work with our writers, it's like trying to like find the things that they actually do want to write for us. You know what I mean? Like it has to work for us, but we don't want to force someone to write about nail polish who hates. Yeah. Like you can, you can lead them as far as you can. And then it's just like, let them do their, (laughs) let them do what they're good at. You know, is there a certain type of article that repeatedly gets pitched to you that you don't want? Um, And I'm thinking, so I have a journalism background. I worked at magazines and I worked at all weeklies. Um, and I remember my editor said that so frequently he's pitched the idea for a column where like, it's just like me ranting about stuff I hate. It's me talking about my pet peeves yeah. like over and over and over and over. Yeah. And he never was going to okay that. Like, the, never. You'll never get to do that. The version of that we would get would be like all these guys who would be like, how would I write for doctors, but do like the guys take like a guy? Oh, we need that. We, yeah. Like, there isn't enough like, of a man's perspective like, in the world. And we're so headline driven and, and like our, the jokes have to be so specific and like we have to be in love with them. So to get such a vague pitch always kind of drives us up yeah, the wall. It we're just like, feels like, I know it's like no one's trying to be a dick, but it's just so lazy. Like, yeah. Oh, of course you just want, let, we're just going to hand you a column like yeah. with no proven. And they're just like, trust me, it'll be funny. Like, yeah. but you're like, what's the joke? What's, the yeah. thing yeah <laughs> right like what are what what are they suggesting satirizing or do they not no, know nothing they're just like oh guy's perspective because i'm a guy and that's the perspective i know and you need yeah. it so like, <laughs> so to all the guys who did that now you know how we feel yeah. <laughs> we said it a lot more nicely in an email so <laughs> nice um do you have a favorite part of the book oh i think we have a handful but i i like the nine circles of hell for women who don't help other women. <laughs> mm-hmm. How to get cat called for your personality. That's a very important one for me. Yeah. Is dating a man feminist? Yeah. And, and uh, foot stomps and other percussive methods to let him know who's boss. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, even just all the timeline stuff is really important because, you know, like 
the history of feminism really comes down to what was on TV at the time. <laughs> yeah, so, what yeah. year was Beyonce yeah. born? Yeah, yeah. What year? I mean, what was Beyonce doing any year really is kind of like important to feminism. <laughs> um, it was kind of a wake up moment for me when I realized the seventh circle of hell for uh, women who don't help other women is women who only carry applicator free tampons. I've been that woman. Ooh. <laughs> Well, it's not even a. It's this came down from the gods, so <laughs> right. we're not making any judgments yeah. here. Yeah. But yeah, <laughs> uh, it's uh, you know, um, it's a matter of taste. It's a matter <laughs> of taste. I won't personally judge. Uh, a lot. Well, I actually recently, well, haven't been pregnant. I haven't had my period in a while, thankfully. But Lucky. before that, I had switched after years and years and years and years and years of exclusively using OB. And it wasn't it wasn't for the environment and it wasn't because they were designed for women by women. It really was just because I felt like I can get them in the right place and I, I was challenged by applicators. Hmm. I made the switch to Tampax Pearl and they are I found them to be much more absorbent. So I was like, oh, I really should have made the switch a long time ago. Yeah. They are like bigger for some reason. And they have that braided them. string that yeah. like. No, I mean, it's, more. it's good. It's good product design. Yeah. I hate to admit. But yeah, like, <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I would, I would do applicator free for the environment, but at this, well, then there goes down this, like I tried a diva cup. Like, have you ever tried that? No, but people recommend, cause I used to have very heavy periods and uh, people recommended that over and over and over. And I just never know. How was that? Uh, so I don't know, maybe I just don't have like a, a circular vagina or whatever, <laughs> but like, I feel like 50% of the, it was like very unreliable that 50% of the time it like wouldn't work. And the thing is like with a tampon, it's like, oh, if something like, if, if it, if you leave it in too long, it's like, oh, whatever. Like, so you like a little bleed bit, a yeah. little bit. This was like fucking the great flood. Like if, if it didn't work, it was the great flood. It was the apocalypse. Did you feel like it was tipping? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's what it, it basically like it didn't form a seal and uh, yeah, it's truly like your worst nightmare, uh, if it like goes like that. And then there's just the whole like being in a public bathroom and being like, sorry, Washing everyone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think all uh, of these things like the applicator free one is like a much bigger deal in New York because we just don't have good bathroom access. You know what I mean? Oh, like yeah. you don't have your own space to deal with that. Yeah. There's some logistical issues, but like, <laughs> but it also pisses me off that we are like, are wasting so much plastic on a single use tampon? And like, that's just like. I yeah. I always grew up with the cardboard applicators. I mean, that's so. what I buy, but my girlfriend gets plastic ones, so I'm like, girl. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I think the cardboard, that was the first thing I tried when I first got my period, and that's when I was like, I can't. I, I, I'm i convinced it's in the wrong place. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I, I know. Feel and it, it can be. Like, yeah. Mm. You, it's, oh, that's the worst feeling. I hate when it's just like, you have to sit with it for four hours. This is stuff you don't get to think about, mm, man in the room. <laughs> yum, yum, yum. <laughs> yeah. Um, getting my period was, I would say, traumatic for me. <laughs> it, it was uh, It was just a sudden being launched into an uncontrollable situation that i hated yeah i don't know i think for some women it's like somehow they that it's not a big deal or and i was someone who because of all the teen magazines and because in general i just i was kind of i had i wasn't a happy kid so i just always wanted to be older mm -hmm. and i really wanted my period and i was like all you know i had read are you there goddess me margaret so many times and it was all about judy bloom and all about like i can't wait to hit puberty and become a woman and I would look in my, you know, I was just looking in my underwear, like waiting for it to show up. It's like, um, and I then wonder, it sucked. Like, 
was that a thing to want to get your period before Judy Bloom wrote that book? Because I feel like That's she made it such a huge thing. Like me and my friends all read that book and then we were like, when am I going to get it? But I'm like, yeah. if I hadn't read the book, I just feel like I would have been like, well, whatever, you know? <laughs> Maybe you're right. And my understanding of it, though, was that basically it's like a few drops in your underwear and then you're a woman. I did mm-hmm. not realize, no, it's a thing that you have to deal with for a number of days and like you will have to find a way to you have to use a tampon or a mm-hmm. panty liner or something like my brain didn't go that far. I just was like, thought I'd just wake up and be a new person. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's the lie they feed to you. <laughs> I mean, I seriously, I think it's just like uh, this, like cult of womanhood there. This is the problem with it is that like you sometimes make something sound great. I mean, like to take a darker turn, like I think uh, part of the reason that female genital mutilation is still like even a thing in the world is partly because like, it's part of like, the womanhood culture of that society that also says like you're a woman if you do this and mm. like we do that with periods too and it's just like no nah, actually it just sucks <laughs> like I, I mean i remember being in like sixth grade and lying to my friends and saying i got my period because they both had and then they like found out that i didn't and i just felt so dumb and it's <laughs> like I mean, like, take that outside of our culture and just and be like, I pretended that I'm bleeding out of my vagina. My friends found out I wasn't pretending to bleed out of my vagina. And like, that was a damaging experience in my adolescence. (laughs) Like, what? I had a close friend who got hers when she was like nine or something. So she was she like confessed it to me one day. But like, she kind of like lorded it over me. Like, she was like, so... I get my period. You know, it was like very like condescending. Like she's like, you'll understand someday. Yeah. You'll uh, understand this terrible thing that I yeah. balls on this nine year old. Right. <laughs> I mean, this was when I was like 11, but she had, she was like, I need you to know, like I've been dealing with this thing and I've had this going on for a while. <laughs> I picture like, her smoking while yeah, laughing about yeah, this. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she was adorable. It was, we were little. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I lied about losing my virginity. Not that I had and said I hadn't, but I no, I said I had because I was embarrassed about how late, how old I was when I when I finally lost it. How old were you? I was twenty. Okay, which I feel like is like I meet a lot of people and like I feel like that's it's on the older side, but it's reasonable. Yeah, it's reasonable. Yeah, yeah. But I think I walked around with this idea that like fourteen or fifteen is when this should be happening. Oh. I look back, I'm like, that's so so yeah. I, yeah, I, there's no. I mean, I feel like at, even at 20, I feel like I that was a little bit young for me, just oh. based on like what I could have handled. Like I, I, I probably could have even waited longer. Um, yeah, but yeah, I think I had this idea that like, oh my god, I'm so old. Yeah, yeah I guess like being in college can be hard. Like not being part of that again cult of womanhood. That yeah, for me, there's definitely us. a feeling of like, I need to get this over with or yeah. it's going to be too late and then I'm going to like, it's going to be too much of a thing or something. And it's definitely like, I wasn't with guys where I was like psyched about it happening. Mm. You know what I mean? So it's like, I could have waited, <laughs> you yeah. know? Like, yeah. Oh, I totally got it over with. It was just, I'm like, I was like 17 and I had a boyfriend and I was just like, Ugh, fine, let's just do this. Yeah. And it's fine. And then it's like, you knock it out, but it was just so not... <laughs> And I was like, oh, like sex isn't fun. Cool. <laughs> I was wrong. But uh, at the time, yeah, it was, it was not that exciting. Yeah. But when did you lose your virginity? It wasn't until college. Okay. <laughs> it was like, but it was like, I don't know. I just like was like, I, I got to get this over with yeah. now. 
that I'm here or like I'm just never going to hear the end of it because I was like I'm not going to lie about this to people but I also don't want to like go through college being a virgin you know like yeah it sucks that we all have to like do that yeah it also sucks that all of our first experiences weren't great although there's so much going on I mean I don't know if it ever would have been great the first time but like yeah it would have been nice to like have it happen with someone who I had like a really established relationship with where we like discussed how things were going to go down and you know like i felt comfortable describing my need you know what i mean right but though that seems that just seems like a bridge too far (laughs) so much much to expect of a young person because i waited until i was with someone that i was dating pretty regularly Mm -hmm. um but i still like did not feel comfortable speaking my mind with him about anything was very insecure about where i you know how he saw me and all that so yeah And it's not like I felt like this guy was, like, trying to take advantage of me or, like, do things I didn't want to do. It was just a matter of, like, society had not taught me in any way how to, like, voice my concerns or desires. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? (laughs) Like, you kind of had to, like, figure that out on your own as you went. Yeah. Um, Let's do a segment called Just Me or Everyone. But first, just a couple quick announcements. You guys, if you're going to buy something on Amazon, uh, which you should do your holiday shopping that way, you could buy How to Win at Feminism, the definitive guide to having it all and then some. Um, Click through the banner on my website, alisonrosen.com. It doesn't cost you anything extra, but it helps out the show. Thank you so much for all of your Amazon support. Um, If you like what you're hearing, subscribe, itunes.com slash alisonrosen. And we are on Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash alisonrosen, it is a way to support podcasts and artists that you like on an ongoing basis. There's different reward levels. You can get bonus episodes every month, um, exclusive live stream. There's a fan club where you get merchandise in the mail, all sorts of cool stuff, activity feed, lots of interaction with other fans of the show and with me um and it's just it's super fun and you need more fun in your life so go to patreon.com slash allison rosen okay sometimes i ponder on something i have thought or done is it just me or everyone Okay, so this is a segment where people write in things they think or do where they wonder, is it just me or is it everyone? And then we weigh in. Mm. Okay. Um, Tawanya Kess says, election season makes me reevaluate my Facebook friends. Yes, and also in the days following the election. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I, I don't know. I have like a really sort of like isolated Facebook feed for some reason. I don't know if the algorithm has like programmed i don't know people out of it <laughs> trump supporters or what but you sound tired of them and I'm, they don't even exhausted exist. Yeah. um yeah you know it does make me rethink it but not in terms of trump supporters more just in terms of like mansplainy white dudes who are like <laughs> smugly like i knew she was gonna lose or you know like stuff like that i just yes yeah, sore winners is mm, how i refer to them like oh mm. worst yeah. but yeah I've, I've pretty much made up i don't unfriend people just because they disagree with me i but i will always fact check whatever asshole bullshit they post (laughs) yeah that's my philosophy is like i don't want to unfriend them because i want them to see my posts and someday (laughs) learn something maybe i don't know maybe it's over optimistic i do think like i we're in like a weird place because we're we are like I don't want to say tastemakers, but like we are, uh, you know, like we're content creators. We're content connoisseurs. We're arbiters of cool. We're like, we we have a certain, 
I know it's small, but we have a certain like status in the community where people sort of sometimes look to what we're saying. They fear mm-hmm. us. They yeah. They're so us. scared of us. Um, so like, I don't know. I'm like, hopefully I can use some of my privilege for good and say some things that are helpful. But uh, yeah, I do. If you're just like the average person, I do think like, if you want to preserve your sanity, like go ahead and unfriend that person, you know? Maria says, even though I hate having my phone in the bathroom at work, I want my health app to know that I do move during the day. (laughs) (laughs) I went through that phase. I definitely like wanted to get my steps in, especially Mm -hmm. if my insurance like pays me a dollar a day if I do it. But like, I got over that really fast. Wait, so, your insurance pays you a dollar yeah, a day? Oscar does, yeah. If you get your steps in. Oh, but, wow. Um, I'm not saying that I recommend Oscar necessarily, but hmm. that's the thing. Um, yeah. I When I used to use a Fitbit, I would leave it at home. I would go on a walk and leave it at home. And I'm like, ah, oh, damn it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not into health trends that are like quant- quantitative or over qualitative. Like mm-hmm. I... I mean, it makes it just personally drives me insane to like be calorie counting or any sort of thing like that because I feel like it just makes me feel inadequate no matter what. I'd rather like be like, I'm gonna give myself a salad and feel healthier, and my body's <laughs> gonna feel better because of that. You know, does that work? Yeah, if I get like a good salad, that's the other thing is like because I'm not doing it in like a calorie counting way, I'll get a salad that has chicken and avocado and stuff, and it tastes good, and it's not like I don't feel like I'm punishing myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, John Maconda says, when dreaming, I'm driving. I'm always going way too fast and out of control. When I dream I'm driving, I always am in a car that's way too small. And I'm like on some ramp that's sort of like an amusement park ride. And then all of a sudden the steering wheel will break off. I'm sure it means something. Yeah. I have like a specific recurring out of control driving dream. Ooh, mine's like similar, but weird. I have a dream that I'm driving a car, but my body is in it, but I am not. Like, I cannot see in front of me to drive, but I can, like, see the car on the highway. But can't, and it's so, like, I, it's this weird, like, out of control thing, but probably stemming from the same weird insecurities. <laughs> wow. Yes. I don't think I have driving dreams. Oh, then you're doing fine in life. I mean, I have other yeah. stress dreams. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> For another time. Another one I have. Is any time that I need to dial a phone in a dream, it takes me a million tries. And there's always a lot of anxiety around that. Like, I just cannot push oh, the yeah. right buttons. Well, like, supposedly you can't, like, read in dreams. Like, yeah. that part of your brain doesn't work. So I think anytime there's, like, text in a dream, it kind of, like, throws your dream off. Because all of a sudden your brain, your brain is like, what am I reading? Right. Yeah. <laughs> James Leroy Wilson says, I wonder how guys with the last name Newman are greeted by friends and acquaintances. I never wonder that ever. Yeah. <laughs> Can't really. Sorry. Yeah. I guess I've actually never wondered that either. But now that you bring it up, I'm sure if these people are Seinfeld fans, then they're greeted just like <laughs> Newman was greeted in Seinfeld. But yep. yeah, I guess I haven't thought that. One, one time my brother um, kept referring to a chubby kid in his church youth group as Newman and he got in trouble. Uh. <laughs> um. Casey Ann says, coffee tastes better when you put the creamer and sweetener in before the coffee. I do do that. You do? I I don't know if it, I don't think it tastes better. I just do it to save the three seconds. (laughs) Like, well, it's, oh, because like if you're doing it in a Keurig, that's when it makes sense. If you're just pouring a cup, it makes no sense. I sometimes will do it just to save myself the stirring or Mm -hmm. like having to get a spoon out and dirty it. Yeah. It Uh saves a step. In that sense, it tastes better. So wait, you can, if you do it ahead of time and then you 
do you do the you press the button on the curd for the yeah. coffee you don't need to stir it all afterwards oh, yeah. i guess if i was like more pouring the coffee in, i would assume that kind of like mixed it up but I, right i think a keg stirs it enough like yeah. or like the nespresso but uh yeah yeah you know what i guess it makes it take taste worse really i know i'm just saying like if it's not quite the most effective stirring then I think it stirs enough for me. <laughs> and I love saving time on anything. So that just makes it taste so so much sweeter. Yeah. Sometimes I will live on the edge and I'll actually pour the creamer or sweetener in while it's like sitting there and the coffee's going into the cup. Mm-hmm. Whoa. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. That. That's, that's how it like kind of stirs and I'm right. like saving all this time and... And then I'm like, what can I do with this free 30 seconds I have now? And I sit and, and what do you it. do with it? I enjoy a cup of coffee. It's nice. <laughs> um, Lynn BF says, sit around late at night wondering what to do next when I should really just go to sleep at a reasonable hour for once. I think that's everyone who goes to sleep late. Well, maybe not yeah. everyone, but that's I common. I definitely do that. I'm like making myself like look at emails and Twitter and stuff. And I'm like, why am I doing this? Yeah. There's no... Yeah, yeah. I think it's like we want that like social media carrot, and like mm-hmm. th- it has like diminishing returns at the end of the day when there's just like less and less interesting stuff to look at. But you still like want it, want right. to seek it out. And then I never go to sleep, and I fall yeah. asleep with my phone in my hand. I always tell myself like I'm going to start reading books and use that time to like sit and read a book, and then it never happens. <laughs> so. We'll get them next time. Yeah, the pile of books next to me on the couch is is getting bigger and bigger and yet still i just sit there with my phone yeah, yeah. i have I so many good intentions especially lately like i really i've been buying a lot of books with the intention to read them it's not yeah. happening um and also i've been getting tired i have been going to bed i used to be someone who would go to bed at like not before two i always stayed up very late um and then i've been going to bed earlier so now it's like 11 or 12 but I begin to get tired and begin to think, oh, it'd be nice to get in bed like at nine. But I never do. But I feel yeah. like I should. Yeah. One day yeah. I just should. When, when I do do that, I'm very happy with myself the next yeah. day. Like, yeah. We're still like on East Coast time. So we've been like going to bed early and waking up super early. And it feels like we're fucking like having birds put on our frock in the morning. <laughs> so like we went to the beach at like eight this morning. Oh, it's it so wholesome. So yeah. We're, we're yeah. like, look at us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh bruised by dawn says just me or everyone there is never enough desk space yeah i'm i'm, yeah. I'm a cluttery kind of person so i agree it's with true. that yes yeah, true oh god our office is so messed up i always want <laughs> like organizers like in order to get like work done i want like as much empty space around me as possible like i can't see anything <laughs> yeah and it's yeah i never have that i'm a beverage collector so i have like six drinks on either side of me but i think about like what would that be like to sit down at like a big empty table with just my laptop and coffee and probably like next to some giant window with like billowing curtains mm-hmm. and just like, you just have to create now. Like <laughs> it's so different than yeah. well, like I'm- hoping that a pile doesn't tip over when I'm sitting at my <laughs> desk, like and my arm is going to hit it. But even in that scenario, I'd probably open like 10 browser tabs <laughs> and then yeah. just be like, Whoa, like <laughs> to- totally overwhelmed no matter what. Yes. Um, <laughs> Yeah, the in- the internet addiction thing. Like, if I'm trying to write something, sometimes I will just have to close out my browser mm-hmm. window, and then I be- it's weird how I begin to feel irresponsible. Like, I haven't checked email in ten minutes, and yeah. then I check it on my phone. Yeah, that's yeah. 
insane. Yeah, it's messed up. We're all addicted. We're fucked. Um, Sadie Simper says, cleaning my, oh, speaking of, cleaning my house really means move all items I don't want to be seen to my bedroom. Yeah, there's a fair amount of just moving the piles around that happens here. Uh, I try to have, like, everything have a place. Oh, that's so smart. Although, now that I have kids, it's like a box of every toy and it's gotten less and less like this is the toy the box for blocks it's become just like here's every toy yeah Uh, yeah i have like one room that's like a dumping ground mm -hmm. and it all goes in there we have that too but that's going to be the baby room so this kid comes early we're screwed comfy (laughs) pile of trash to sleep on here's a bunch of cardboard boxes because we are hanging on to them because we'll need them Here's exercise equipment that hasn't been used in a while. I mean, and there's a bunch of things in frames. <laughs> they don't have any idea what's going on for like at least six months. That's what I hear. So. And I hear they don't even sleep in there. In, like if you yeah. have a baby room they don't, or a nursery, they don't sleep there. Yeah, they don't. Um, and lastly, Sarah Simmons says, I have no idea why training your pet to pee outside is called housebreaking. I don't know, but broke or like... When TV writers talk about breaking a story, that always seems like a weird use of it. Mm-hmm. Or um, horse trainers, I think. Yeah, well, they say like breaking, breaking a the horse. spirit. Yeah, it's like breaking yeah. a horse's spirit, which seems so sad. But I think it's like true. I mean, it's that r- is it's what like you're doing, right. Yeah. You've like broken this like natural instinct for them to like pee on a tree when they feel like it, and like yeah, we've domesticated them in the saddest way possible. There should be a friendlier word for it. Like, um, what what would it be though? Let's see. Um, wow. Oh, swarming. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that seems easy enough. Warm, warmed up to it's living like, in hey, a house. You live in here now. You live in captivity. Why couldn't it be house training? Yes, it kids, is also potty that. Train. Right. Oh, it is right. house right. You training? don't potty break them. Yeah. I guess I, they I also call it house training. I've only ever heard house broken. You, you, won't, you won't go to, a, oh, it was your dog house trained. You say house broken. Yeah, that's true. It seems mean. Yeah, house trained. I feel like I've heard that, but if that's what we're going to go with from now on. <laughs> Good. I like it. <laughs> um, Sarah and Beth, thank you so much for coming and doing the show. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Follow me on Twitter at Allison Rosen. Follow the show's Twitter feed at A-R-I-Y-M-B-F. Jeff, where should we go for you? You can find me on Facebook and Twitter at Colonel Jeff Fox. I'll be giving the guys take. Trust me, it'll be fun. Yeah. <laughs> and um, Beth and Sarah, let them know where to find you and plug everything that you'd like to plug. We're at Reductress.com. You can find Reductress on Facebook and Twitter. We have the Mouth Time podcast, and our book is How, How to, to Win, win at Feminism. Feminism. Perfect. We did it. Yay. Thank you so much, listeners. Thank you for listening. I love you. Goodbye. Hey, do you know about the Allison Rosen Show? We had a good time, but now we got to go. Rosie is your new band.